Pushkin. Hey, it's Noah. I want to tell you about a podcast from New York Magazine. It's called Pivot, and it's hosted by New York Magazine editor-at-large Kara Swisher and NYU business professor Scott Galloway. Every Tuesday and Friday, Kara and Scott break down the major news stories of the week and take a sharp look at how they're changing the way we communicate, vote, shop, and live. You can expect razor-sharp insights, bold predictions, and a declaration of the week's big winners and losers. Kara and Scott banter and bicker at the speed of your Twitter feed, and the show is as funny as it is informative. So subscribe to Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway for free in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes automatically from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. A few weeks ago on the show, I spoke to Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Romer. And Paul had what he considered a simple plan to reopen the economy without risking people's health. All we need to do is switch to a strategy where we're testing everybody with regularity. As soon as we find somebody who's positive, we need to isolate them without isolating lots of people who could otherwise just go back to daily life and work. Paul is not alone. Public health experts have been almost unanimous in saying that we need a lot of tests very soon in order to protect health and eventually reopen the economy. And yet we are behind Germany, Canada, and even Italy when it comes to per capita testing. And as of now, less than 1% of the U.S. population has been tested for coronavirus. So what is the holdup? What are the bottlenecks that stand between us and effective testing? To learn more about coronavirus testing, both for diagnosis and then for antibody testing to see if people have already had the disease, I'm joined by Dr. Omai Garner, He's the director of clinical microbiology testing for UCLA Health. His lab does more than 1.5 million tests a year of all kinds. And so he finds himself right in the thick of the question of how we test for COVID. Oh my, I'm so grateful to you for agreeing to talk to me. I want to ask you to help guide us through the process of just why testing takes so long to generate and to cause to function. So start wherever you want. Maybe start with the diagnostic tests first. What are the challenges to having millions of diagnostic tests up and running on a daily basis? You know, that's the million-dollar question. I think that there are lots of challenges from many ends. And so just I think it's useful to a little bit walk through the process of getting a diagnostic test for COVID-19 by PCR because it starts to then outlay where the challenges are in the system. And so the first part of the diagnostic test is the collection of the sample. This is the part I think people are most familiar with. You either go to your doctor's office or a hospital or a drive-through location and a swab is inserted deep into the nasal cavity. And then that sample is sent to a centralized testing lab. I think there's been a little bit of confusion around this because they call those locations testing locations, but no actual testing happens there. And so I think people think, why would it take so long if the test happens right where you collected it? So the sample needs to be sent to a centralized laboratory, like my laboratory, where we perform the PCR test. 
And the PCR test, depending on which platform is used, can take anywhere from two to six hours. And I think this is also something that's not well known because if the test only takes two to six hours, why are people waiting seven to 14 days to be able to get a test result, right? And I think one of the infrastructure challenges around this particular outbreak and testing itself is that there are just not enough centralized laboratories that are able to do this testing right now. And this starts to key in on why we don't have testing across the country. And a lot of, and we have labs, so it's not to say that there aren't centralized clinical laboratories. There are centralized clinical laboratories in almost every single city across this country. The challenge is that each one of those laboratories does not have the equipment to be able to test for COVID-19. And the labs that do have the equipment, there is such a shortage on the tests themselves that many labs that have the equipment still can't run the capacity of tests they could run within a day. One of the fascinating questions to me is, is there some alternative technology potentially in the pipeline that would make it easier to collect samples by means other than the long swab that goes deep into the nasal cavity? You know, Donald Trump himself said it was a miserable experience for him to have that done. And though I'm not super worried about his own experience, it does mark the fact that we need not only the swabs, but we need medical professionals to do the swabbing. Whereas it might be a lot faster and more efficient if people could do it at home or there was a saliva test. Right now, why is it the case that we can't do that? I think that a lot of this is about clinical sensitivity of what you're collecting. And when I say that, I mean, how likely is it for a false negative to be given to a patient? So in the environment of COVID-19, we want to try our best to avoid a false negative. And in order to do that, you want to take the best possible specimen to increase your likelihood of actually collecting virus. Now, this is really then the question is, where is the virus? Right? Is the virus out at the end of the nasal cavity? Is the virus very, very deep in the nasal cavity? Is the virus in the throat? Is the virus in different various oral fluid compartments? And the reason why nasal pharyngeal collection was the first thing that was used is because that's where we know other respiratory viruses live. And so whether you're doing a PCR test for influenza or a PCR test for something like respiratory syncytial virus, the best possible specimen, meaning the specimen that gives you the highest likelihood for recovery of virus, is actually that really deep nasopharyngeal specimen. So then I think ultimately the question is, do you need to take the best possible specimen or in this particular case with this particular virus, can you find an equal amount of virus in some of these other specimens? And those studies are ongoing. I agree with you. If we could just use oral fluid, I would change all of my tests to oral fluid tomorrow. But I won't do it if it's going to mean we produce more false negatives. Now let's turn to the lab. So you were saying the sample comes to you, it reaches you in the lab, and you're going to perform a PCR test. What is a PCR test? The test is actually in two components, with PCR being the second component. So the first component is really, it's called RNA extraction. And what happens is that when the sample comes in, this first step actually takes out all the nucleic acid from that sample. And so now what you have is instead of the full sample from the patient, you just have a pool of RNA. And then you run the PCR mm -hmm. test. And so the PCR test is called an RT-PCR test. It's a reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction. That's that RT-PCR. And what it does is because we're looking for RNA, PCR is a technology that examines DNA. 
So the first step is you have to turn the RNA into DNA, and that's that reverse transcription. The second test then is the polymerase chain reaction. And the polymerase chain reaction is really a way to amplify a specific target on DNA to see whether or not that target is there. And of course, the target we're looking for is COVID-19. And so if some of that viral RNA is there, it's been converted to DNA, and then PCR can target to tell you whether or not that viral RNA was originally in that specimen. And it's exquisitely sensitive. The tests that we're using in my laboratory get down to about 500 copies of virus per mil of fluid. And so what I like to tell people is that if the virus is in the sample, the test will find it. That's super clarifying and helpful. Now, you said that there are enough laboratories in the United States to handle even a substantial volume of testing, and that the problem is that they don't have the necessary equipment. In a concrete sense, what is missing in these labs? Because if we could figure out what that is, maybe we could talk about how we provide it. Sure. So there are now, I don't know, somewhere around 12 FDA emergency use authorization approved PCR tests for COVID-19. The challenge is that the manufacturers of those tests need to get those tests to those laboratories to be able to provide testing. So giving an example from my own laboratory, I actually run four different FDA-approved tests for COVID-19. And the reason why I do that is because I can't get one manufacturer to give me enough volume of test kits to meet the need. So I actually have to bring in four different tests to be able to do that. You get a couple of hundred a day from one place, you get a couple of hundred a day from another place, and you combine all of that volume together, and I can get up around the thousand tests a day or so that I can offer in my laboratory. This is a significant challenge, and the shortage by the manufacturers of the diagnostic tests really is contributing to our inability to have widespread testing. And I don't want to put the blame on the manufacturers for this. What they've been asked is very, very difficult, which is to basically pivot their entire operation. And these are diagnostic manufacturers that make all kinds of diagnostic tests. HIV viral load tests, gonorrhea, chlamydia, PCR tests. And they're saying to them, okay, we need you to make a COVID-19 test and ramp it up a hundred times more the volume you would normally make for testing. What do you think is slowing them down in doing that? I mean, just at the most basic level, I'm picturing the factory where they make the tests and I'm picturing them shifting over the functionality that they usually have to produce other kinds of tests onto producing COVID-19 tests. What's the holdup for them that stops them from doubling or tripling to say nothing of going up to 100 times? So I think one of the holdups is just manufacturing capacity because you can't just stop making the other tests because people still have those other diseases. And so it's almost like you need to, on top of what you were making before, now go ahead and produce 100-fold times COVID-19 testing. And so, you know, I really think it's a manufacturing bottleneck. You can only do so many runs at a time because you only have so much manufacturing capacity in that setting. In speaking with the manufacturers, this is what I've been told. The other part of the problem that we've discovered kind of over time is that a lot of these manufacturers rely on some of the same chemicals to make their own proprietary test kits. And if one chemical, let's say, that multiple manufacturers use 
is in shortage, that then stops all of them from making more tests. So there's a whole supply chain here of the chemicals that are necessary to make this work. And so one has to go back a further step and go to the chemical companies and make sure the chemical companies are manufacturing more of this. In terms of stopping, though, the production of their other tests, can't an argument be made that given the tremendous, almost unimaginable cost of keeping our economy shut down, and given that testing is so crucial to reopening, that they actually should stop manufacturing the other tests, rely on whatever backlog they have, and just prioritize COVID-19 tests ahead of everything else? I can agree with you there. You know, I don't work for the companies. I can only speak as an end user that's in an academic medical facility and, and running these tests. That, yes, I think that the pivot needs to be fast. I think part of the challenge as well, though, is that these companies aren't made to pivot like that. And so, you know, getting the either federal support or whatever would be necessary to encourage them to be able to do this is one of the challenges. But yes, I will agree with you overall to meet this immediate need, there needs to be a shifting. And I know a lot of companies are shifting. It's just the scale of the shifting. You know, when we think of clinical lab testing, you know, there has never been a test in my laboratory where I need to do 2,000 tests a day. So the scale of this is just, it's, it's mind-boggling from a overall diagnostics perspective, because I don't want to represent it as something like, well, the manufacturers just should have shifted and this would have been relatively easy for them to do and they're negligent to not do that. That's not what's going on. This is really an unprecedented shift that's being asked for, yet at the same time, we have to be able to do it. In your lab, the PCR test, if you have the equipment, can be run in two to six hours. So what is driving the backlog that causes people to have to wait seven to 10 days for a result? A lot of that is that every single state doesn't even have large-scale testing that's available. One of our reference laboratories in California, Quest Diagnostics, was receiving samples from New York and New Jersey. Well, if you're shipping samples across the country to be able to have them tested at a facility, and then once they get to that facility, if the queue or line is 200,000 tests long, you can see that it just increases exponentially the turnaround time, which is the expression that we use in lab diagnostics for the amount of time it takes from the sample to be collected all the way to the person getting the result back. Is there any centralized national planning for where tests should go? I mean, it seems very crazy that someone could be tested in New York and then have their samples sent to LA so that a lab there can do the work. But I get that you have to send the tests where there's, there's access. It sounds like the kind of thing which would benefit from a centralized model. I agree with you. I think a centralized model would be helpful, but you know, I think that this is tied into our healthcare system. And our healthcare system is not built around a centralized model. And so I think this is why you see some of the great disparity across the country is because there is no centralized model and thus individual areas, some can be very, very fast and some may not have access to testing at all. What realistically is going to happen in your view if in the next few weeks, you know, sort of like end of April, first few weeks of May, we see an effort to get people back to work, coupled with big companies trying to get tests done for their employees, eventually, you know, over the course of the summer, campuses like university campuses trying to get people tested in a systematic way. 
Is that at all realistically doable from your perspective, given where we stand? I mean, you're perfectly placed to give a credible answer to this question because most people are just speaking theoretically. Yeah, I'm optimistic. So within that optimism, and again, I talk to multiple manufacturers of these tests on a daily basis, everybody is ramping up. And as everybody ramps up, I see more and more hospitals, even just in the Los Angeles area, being able to provide testing. And so I think we're moving in the right direction. The question is, are we moving in a direction fast enough to match what we're going to do with changes in social distancing policies? And that's a really difficult thing to be able to predict because I think the two need to be tethered together. As we increase our testing capacity, I think that's one way for us to start in a responsible way, opening back up, getting people back to work. But, you know, I think if you just flip the switch on May 15th or whatever arbitrary day that said, it's going to so outpace our pace of testing that we're going to end up right back where we were. So, you know, I think that states that are going to be able to do this in a scientific and educated way to meet the testing needs while you open up, I think that we can be successful at it. We'll be back in just a moment. Let's talk about TransferWise, the smartest way to send and receive money internationally. If you've ever had to move money across borders, chances are you were haunted. Haunted by hidden fees. Whether you used your bank or another provider, they likely hid an extra fee in the exchange rate, and you paid too much. And if you didn't notice, well, that's the whole point. TransferWise is different. You always get the real exchange rate when you send money to over 70 countries. You pay one super low fee and hold on to more of your money. TransferWise also offers an easy alternative to opening a bank account in a new country. Their multi-currency account lets you hold up to 45 currencies at once and convert between them anytime. You can even get your own bank details for the US, UK, Eurozone, and Australia, meaning you receive money from those countries for free. It's great for freelancers or anyone who works internationally. But don't take my word for it. TransferWise has over 6 million customers who save $3 million every day in bad rates and hidden bank fees. That's over $1 billion in savings every year. Try them out today and get your first transfer for free by visiting transferwise.com slash podcast. Deep Background is supported by Audible with an unbeatable selection of audiobooks on history, science, psychology, and more. I use Audible constantly, especially on my bike. I love it. One of the books I just listened to is a classic that I'd always wanted to read and never got around to, The Leopard by Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa, an incredibly beautiful book about Naples in the 19th century. You can download titles from Audible and listen offline, anytime, anywhere. And if you can't decide what to listen to, don't worry. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series if you'd like. You can listen with the Audible app at home or on the go, anytime, anywhere. Visit audible.com slash background or text background to 500-500. So far, we've been talking about PCR testing, which is to see if a person from whom a sample has been taken has the virus now. But part of opening up will also be extensive antibody testing. Do you guys do that in your lab? So not yet. I'm going through the validation process now. 
And so my expectation is that we should go live at UCLA with antibody testing, hopefully sometime early to mid next week. I do want to make kind of a general comment about the antibody testing compared to the PCR, though. So I said there were like 9 to 12 manufacturers of the PCR test. Ultimately, they're using the exact same technology, even though there are small differences between the tests. And so you can really see those tests as the same tests. So whether I offer a PCR test or hospital down the street offers a PCR test, they're all going to be kind of the equivalent sensitivity and high quality. Unfortunately, that is not true for antibody testing at all. And so the challenge of antibody testing is that it was unregulated by the FDA to begin with. So there were a lot of tests that flooded the market that were very, very low quality. And every single antibody test manufacturer, because I've now talked to five or six of them, are using a different target on the virus to be able to look for antibodies. And that distinctly affects whether or not these tests are cross-reactive and they produce false positives. And so unfortunately, what you're going to see with antibody testing is that depending on the platform each testing area uses, they could have vastly different results. And this makes antibody testing then in determining kind of what it means very, very challenging. So how did you go about the process of choosing the approach that you're going to use in your lab? So I was looking for the best test possible, right? I think the challenge with antibody testing is that it needs to be of the highest quality if we're going to have any chance of trying to establish some level of immunity or even affect behavior by having something like a positive test result. And so in speaking with the companies, what I really wanted to look at was the size of their validation data whether or not they proved non-cross-reactivity with something like seasonal coronavirus, influenza, some other viruses that we all have IgG for that you would not want to be cross-reactive in a COVID-19 antibody test. And so we did a long process of evaluation. And then now, once we've chosen our company we want to move forward with, I'm going to do an extensive in-lab validation with serum that I already have from COVID-19 positive patients and from patients with other viruses to prove that it works before I go forward with a test for my patients. So you're actually doubling up. First, you're choosing what you think is the best test, and then you're going to test it yourself in the lab to make sure that you have confidence in it before you start using it. Absolutely. I think it's the only way. In, In the current environment with the amount of antibody tests that are out there, it's just I have to be sure because clinical decisions are going to be made Based on these results, personal decisions are going to be made based on these results. And so, you know, that's really the role of a clinical lab director in choosing the best possible test. One of the things that has fascinated me is to hear about scientists around the country trying to come up with outside-the-box solutions to massively increase testing capacity. And one of the most intriguing ones that I read about was produced by a group at the Broad Institute here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is where I'm based, not at the Broad, but in Cambridge, that was proposing, at least theoretically, a massive throughput approach where they would barcode using a CRISPR-like DNA technique, barcode samples so that they could then run through sequencers hundreds of thousands of tests at a single run. That's obviously a very different technology, and it's using very different kinds of methods than are used in most clinical labs. 
as someone who does it the old-fashioned way, as it were, what do you think are the odds of success here? I mean, it might be worth trying it, even if the probability of success is very low, because it would be great to test so many people so quickly. What are the big challenges that that approach faces, in your view? Yeah, so the, the scientists that run these approaches are very talented scientists. You know, they're research-based scientists, and um, I think that they will be able to successfully put together a system that could theoretically do 100,000 samples. Part of what differentiates a research test from a clinical test, something that's allowed to be used on patients, is that you have to prove that it works before you can actually use it clinically. And part of the challenge of a system like this, I was literally having this exact same conversation with some researchers at UCLA, is that in order to prove that it works on scale, you need to test 50,000 samples, 100,000 samples. And the challenge of doing that is how do you get those samples within a research setting under IRB approval and not have it take nine months? a year, a year and a half, which is typically what these sorts of things would take before you even began to have enough data to submit to the FDA to get approval of your new technique. And so while I do think that this could work, I don't know if it's going to move in a time frame that's going to make it feasible. There are other concerns that I have kind of wrapped up in this. A lot of the challenges of, let's say, the paper that you had talked about, it, it doesn't use RT-PCR, it uses LAMP, which is a different nucleic acid amplification technology that can have sensitivity issues. This is also part of some other challenges when you pool large things together is that on an individual sample basis, sometimes you're just not as good as the gold standard. And these would be the things that these places would have to prove to the FDA before they got approval to do massive testing. In addition, you know, while I respect the fact that you can run 100,000 samples at one time, just collecting 100,000 samples, getting them sent to one area, and getting them processed to be able to run is a phenomenal challenge that's wrapped up on the pre-analytical side or kind of even before the testing begins. So I am excited about this because I actually don't think this is going to be our last pandemic there isn't anything to suggest it would be. And so if we can get things online like this and really start thinking about how the country, when we need to, could pivot to mass-scale testing for a virus, that's a really good thing to have in our back pocket. Is this something that's going to work for COVID-19? I don't know if the time scale is actually going to meet up with the technology. If I could close our conversation on a modestly lighter note, but nevertheless an important one, um, I read that you had said that Watching Cuba Gooding Jr. in the 1995 film Outbreak was one of the things that inspired your career path. And of course, a lot of us now feel like we're living Outbreak, the sequel. Yes. What does that feel like for you personally to be, you know, on the front lines here? It's interesting. So 2014, we had our Ebola crisis in the United States. And uh, at UCLA, I was part of the Ebola treatment team. And so in that setting, you know, as an Ebola treatment, a person participating in the treatment of the patient, you have to get fully suited up. So if you can imagine Cuba Gooding Jr. an outbreak in that yellow suit, that's similar to what you wear when you're attempting to discern whether or not somebody has Ebola. So it was that moment I really kind of had my outbreak moment. This one I have felt mm -hmm. it's a little bit strange because until we kind of all move forward with masking, it was a pandemic, but everything looked fine. 
So it was kind of different from the outbreak scenario. It was like a shift in what I thought a pandemic would look like. And that's what I found to be the most surprising of this whole thing. Hundreds of thousands to potentially millions of people worldwide are going to die of this disease. But it's not like running around in the biosafety level four suits. All of the movies, you know, TV shows and so forth, none of them has a scene where people say, well, we should all suit up. Oh, but wait a minute, we don't have enough suits. You know, that's not a plot detail that they've ever taken advantage of in the past, though I suppose we'll see it going forward. Yes. Thank you, Omai. This was extraordinarily clarifying and helpful. I really hugely appreciate your step-by-step patience in explaining what you do every day to us. Thank you for doing the work that you're doing, and uh, we all appreciate it. Excellent. Thanks for having me on, Noah. I appreciate it. Listening to Dr. Omai Garner, I had moments of optimism because he himself said that he thinks we are scaling up our capacities in a way that will facilitate a lot more testing than we're doing at present. That was the good news. On the other hand, Omai also made it very clear that there are significant limits to how many tests we can do under current circumstances. We have the shortage of chemicals in the existing tests, we have limited capacity, and when it comes to antibody testing, we still don't really know how well the various tests work. Last but not least, although Omai thinks that some of the most fascinating experimental techniques being proposed to test hundreds of thousands of people at the same time have a good shot of working, he's concerned that it may not be possible for that kind of testing at that kind of scale to be ramped up in time to help us address the COVID-19 epidemic as opposed to future epidemics. Above all, Dr. Omai Garner is a kind of model of the clear-speaking, clear-thinking scientist who can explain things to all of us. And I feel very lucky that he's at the helm of an important lab like the one at UCLA. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with research help from Zui Nguyen. Mastering is by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to bloomberg.com slash podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background.